I'd like for you to turn to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. And we're going to begin at verse 9. What a tremendous passage we're going to deal with tonight, and I hope you're ready to follow with me. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But we do see him who, was, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one, for it was fitting for him from, for whom all are all things and through whom are all things, bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, covering for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. One of his biographers said of him, he was a thin, scarce man, hardly five foot tall, and he had this distinctive musical ability, talent. He ministered in the 18th century when giants ministered in the pulpits of Great Britain. And he authored 671 hymns, if you can believe that, many of which are in our hymnal. Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my Sovereign die and hundreds more. And he authored a hymn that we don't sing too often, but its message is powerful. I want you to listen to it. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? 
Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight. If I should win, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And Isaac Watts penned those words, farmed them, so that every one of us would ask that question when we sing them. Am I a soldier of the cross? So, are you? It is one thing to, to sing about the soldier of the cross. It's exhilarating to do that. It's another thing to be one. Tammy Wynette, some of you know and love Tammy, uh, sang with nasal, nasal voice, Stand by your man. Sold a million records, Stand by your man, but she didn't. In fact, she was divorced five times. It's one thing to sing about it. It's another thing to experience it. Who is there who has sailed through bloody seas? And what tides have we stemmed? Now there are some who are soldiers of the cross. I'm thinking of Alexander Solzhenitsyn who said from a, from a Russian prison, the meaning of earthly existence lies not as we've grown used to thinking in prospering, but in the development of the soul. And while he slept on a rotten bed of straw in that Roman prison, while he lived there, he found the Lord and said, Oh, blessed are you prison for having been in my life not knowing if he was going to live or die, whether he was going to get out or not. Blessed are you, prison, for having been in my life. I tell you, the secret of human suffering is perspective. It is not what happens to us that makes or breaks us. It's our interpretation of what happens to us. It is seeing through the affliction. It is seeing beyond the horror. The fact is, we're all soldiers of the cross. And the truth is, not all of us have perspective. For well, some, suffering and pain and hardship and trials make us bitter. And we resent them. And we fight against the God who allows them. And there were some who were just like that in this book, to whom this book was written. And so the, the author of the book of Hebrews is telling them to hang on to develop perspective in suffering. And I think I have identified two essential ingredients in perspective with regard to human suffering, to hardship, that are in this text. The first is that we know the Lord. And we see Him, he said. He didn't spend too much time talking about the trial, but he spends the whole book talking about the Lord. We do see Him. Let me ask you a question. Which is the most predominant in your mind, your problem or Him? And when you close your eyes at night, what do you see in your heart, in your mind's eye? Your problem or Him? Your, which is the most prominent, 
your pain, your problem, or His provision. Now you can be handicapped. If you don't see Him, you'll not have perspective. You can be the parent of a handicapped child. If you don't see Him, you'll not have perspective. You can have a terminal illness and enduring pain. If you don't see Him, you'll not have perspective. The key to facing life is seeing Him. And there's a second ingredient to to perspective. It's found in the same verse, verse 9. It is the grace of God. For it is by and through the grace of God that a man endures hardship triumphantly. It is by His grace. And the Apostle Paul prayed for the removal of his thorn, that thorn in the flesh. And God knew that what he needed was not the experience of the thorn's removal. What he needed was the experience of his grace. And he found that grace that was sufficient in the trial. So the two necessary ingredients for perspective in life in hardship is to see him and to to send roots down deep into his grace. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews begins verse, this passage by calling Jesus the author of our salvation. The word means trailblazer. It's the idea of a pioneer. Now, I don't know. I want you to watch this because I'm going to put some things for you in kind of in a sequence. I don't know how it fits in this outline. As a matter of fact, it probably doesn't. But I want you to get these things in the sequence. Now, watch them carefully. Put down number one is this that in order to bring us to glory, Jesus had to suffer. In order to bring us to glory, Jesus had to suffer, and He suffered the ignominious death of the cross. But it was necessary for Him to suffer to bring us to glory. Second thing is that the Scripture says that Jesus was perfected in suffering. Now the question is, How do you perfect something that's already perfect? But what he's talking about is not the deity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus. And he's saying in essence that Jesus became the complete and perfect high priest having suffered. He was qualified to become our high priest through his suffering. Third thing put down is that when Jesus saves us, His object, our goal and purpose in saving us is not just to get us saved and into heaven, but to bring us to glory. And that word does not refer to getting us into heaven, but to bring us to the soterion, to the point of fulfillment or completion, to perfection. His goal in saving us was to present us perfect before God so that He is is developing and perfecting a bride which is without spot or blemish, so that the goal of Christ's suffering was to bring us to completion. Perfection is the word. Fourth thing to put down, that if we are the sons and daughters of verse 10, which he is bringing to glory, and if he himself was perfected through suffering, then it must be in the plan of God, watch this, to perfect us, through suffering. It must be in the plan of God that He will complete us and perfect us through suffering. 
Now the question is, do I want to be the complete and and purified and perfected creation that God set out to create in my salvation experience? If I want to be that, if I want to be everything God has dreamed for me to be, I must understand that a way of getting there, one of the plans to get there, is to bring me through trials. Philip Young has a book, Where is God When I Hurt? And in this book he tells about Robin Graham, who at the age of 16 set out to sail around the world by himself. And in this big sailing yacht or vessel that he had, he he got out there in the lonely expanse of the ocean and was broadsided by a storm, nearly destroyed his craft. It was nearly sucked up with a typhoon water spout. He He got into an area near the equator called the doldrums, and there's no breeze there, so he just sat in that craft for days and not able to move. And he got so full of despair and, and, and depression that he poured kerosene on his vessel and set it on fire. He's going to burn it up and go down with it. And it didn't take him long to change his mind. And he grabbed water and put out the fire. A little over two years later, he sailed into harbor out near San Diego to the shouts and the screams and the applause and the acclaim of thousands of people. The Coast Guard and were, were, were sounding their horns. It was a triumphant return. He had this experience of exaltation that he would not have had returning from a normal pleasure outing. The agonies of the round-the-world trip made it possible for his triumphant return. And this is what Philip Young says in the end of the illustration. Robin Graham left a 16-year-old boy and returned a 19-year-old man. And it doesn't take much imagination to understand that how he matured was through the agony and the suffering and the hardship of that voyage. Now, you can live the rest of your life, and so can I, as a babe, as a child, as what 1 John calls a son, or you can become a father, you can become a mature person. And that's the goal and the dream that God has for all of us. But the way He's going to get there is through suffering. For how are we going to gauge the measure of pleasure without the valley of pain? Every mother knows tonight the excitement that comes in holding that bone of her bone, flesh of her flesh to herself. And she has that experience having known the pain of birth. Now there are four areas of suffering this text identifies. I'm going to give you four and then we'll hurry through. First of all, we find suffering through our identification with Christ, verses 11 through 14a, and I'm not going to take time to read those. Now, now what do we mean by pain and suffering brought on by our identification with Christ? Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to two verses of Scripture. The first is in Philippians chapter 3, and the other is in Colossians chapter 1. They're just one, about two pages apart. If you've got a Bible like mine, so turn to those, would you? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. This is Paul's dominant thought. This is his one single passion, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm having, I'm having a hard time. Let's have a party. You know, let's celebrate. I'm having suffering. When's the last time you went through a hard time in your life, a desert experience? You called your, you called your friend and said, Come on down. We're having a party. What's the occasion? Well, I'm having suffering. I'm suffering. I'm going to celebrate. Not many of us do that. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, what's this, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now I've had a hard time understanding what that means. A.T. Robinson says it this way. He said, it's now Paul's turn at bat to use a baseball figure. Christ had his turn, the grandest of all, and suffered for, all, for us all in a sense uh, not true of anyone else. In other words, he's saying Christ suffered in a way nobody else will ever suffer. Christ did not cause suffering to cease. There is plenty left for Paul and for each of us in his time. Let, let me see if I can say it in a way we can understand it. There is a certain amount of, of pain and suffering that you'll have to endure because of what you are. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I think that when my kids hurt, I hurt worse than when I hurt. My daughter's homesick tonight, and, and, and I feel worse than she feels. I really think that. My single daughter who works in, in Del Rio, Texas, where, God, where Moses struck the rock, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. I mean, she's way off down there. And she can call me at night, and she'll have a bad day, or her DM or district manager give her a hard time, and I won't sleep for days. <laughs> I mean, it just kills me. There's a certain amount of suffering that you'll do because of what you are. Now watch this. When you become a Christian, you might as well understand that to identify with Jesus Christ means that you're going to have to endure some things that you would not have to endure if you were not a Christian. Don't ever be guilty of saying, if you'll become a Christian, you won't ever have any problems. Let me tell you something. Your problems will just begin if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have some suffering that you'll not have otherwise. I heard this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's true whether it happened or not. In the days of the Roman Empire, there were these 40 wrestlers that they kept to entertain the Roman emperors. And these men would come out in these arenas and they would salute the emperor, and this is what they'd say. They'd say, 40 wrestlers wrestle for you, O king, O Caesar, in order to win for you the victory and from you the victor's crown. And they'd get out there and wrestle. When the barbarians began to invade Roman territory, they needed all the soldiers they could get. So they sent these 40 wrestlers out to battle, to war. And out there in that no man's land, somehow they, began, they became um, uh, attached or related to Christian, the Christian faith and they became, a Christ, they became Christians. And these men came back to Rome to proclaim their Christian faith and were told that they would be killed if they didn't renounce their faith. And they wouldn't do it. And so the Caesar had the centurion 
to take them out one day in the cold of winter, and there was this frozen lake. And he told them, he said, please renounce your faith, and when they wouldn't. He, he made them strip and walk out into the lake and said, now when you're ready to renounce your faith, you can come into the fire. And they built a fire there. And out there in that frozen lake, these men began to sing, Forty wrestlers die for you, O Christ, in order to for you win the victory and from you win the crown. In a little while, that song changed. Thirty-nine wrestlers die for you, O Christ. And, and the centurion watched as one of those wrestlers struggled against the ice to come out to the fire, renounced his faith. And that song went up, 39 wrestlers die for you, O Christ, to, to, for, you, to for you win the victory and from you win the crown. And as the song, as the, as the hymn got quieter and these men began to die, the last time that song was sung, it was sung like this, 40 wrestlers die for you, O Christ for you to win the victory and from you to win the crown because that centurion stripped himself and paraded out into that lake to die with those men. Now there are some folks who have gone to the house and have turned away and turned their back on Christ. But I want you to believe with me that if you have identified with Jesus Christ in His death, it means that you're going to have to suffer for Him some things in life. It may be rejection, whatever it is. It's the truth. Secondly, there is the pain of enslavement to sin, verses 14 through and 15. Now, I can remember when I was not a Christian how much, how much pain I, must, I, I brought to my mother and dad. You know, sometimes just to think about it, just you know, kind of just breaks my heart. Really, I wish I could go back and do it over. I must have brought so you know, and, and all the time, and you, you can identify. And all the time, you know, I, I'm I'm doing these things as an unbeliever. I didn't really want to do that. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul. The things I wanted to do were the things I didn't, and the things I didn't want to do were the things I did. And I was unbearable to my employer, and I cursed with my mouth, and I fought with my fist. And there was a tremendous amount of pain in my life, which was the result of sin's enslavement of me. And I have to confess that still a part of me is enslaved to that old nature. There's so many things that I do that I wish I didn't. And there is the suffering of failure in verse 17. It's the cry of failure. Is there anybody here tonight who has not failed? Who has not blown it? And there is the suffering of a failed marriage and a failed business. And there is a suffering that comes when we make wrong decisions and fail. We know the suffering of failure. And then there is the suffering that comes in with temptation. Verse 18. And, and there's an interesting parenthetical phrase there. He says that he comes to the aid. The word means he runs to our cry. Who has not fought the battle with lust? And who has not known the yo-yo of flesh and spirit? And, 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 and the author says that you can just cry and he comes running to your aid. 
because he cares about that suffering we endure. And you know what Romans 8 calls these experiences? Romans 8 calls them groanings. Listen to what he said. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy or not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's saying inside of us there is this groaning for the day when we will be perfected. Now I want to make three statements. It kind of sums it all up. Number one, I hope you're listening. Our groaning gives us the glory of a compassionate heart gives us the comp- glory of a compassionate heart. That's why you've got compassion and some people don't. You know, I'm kind of tired of, of biblical truth being dispensed by shell answer men. You know, I mean, you know Mr. Knows-its. You ever listen to that? Now Mr. Knows-it, he knows everything. And, and I, I, one of my, one of my uh, big... Uh, Pet peeves, I guess you'd say, for one of a better term, is somebody that just has all the answers. Mr. Knows it. You know, the Christian faith is just not that easy that you can just kind of put in a little old package and say, well, this is why. There's so many, there's so many things for which we have no answers. There's so many things that have no explanation. How do you, how, a guy would be more than presumptuous if he sat down and he thought he could explain to, two young, to a young couple why their child died, drowned. Well, let me tell you what I've discovered. That there are a lot of folks who don't have the answers, but they have the compassion and the care. And they're the people who have been there. They're the people who've been there. It gives you a compassion if you've been there. Don't try to give somebody an answer, a pat answer, if you have been there. A lady came into my office not long ago. She's from another town. Somebody sent her over to my office for counseling. She had a child who was born, stillborn. About a few months after that, she miscarried. And her husband was wanting her to try again to have a child. She was frightened by it. She said, I don't think I, can, I could endure it again. I have just been hurt so much. And she wanted me to help her get over that fear. It's exactly what I said, what do you want me to do for you? She said, I want you to help me get over the fear. So as we talked, we tried to talk about some of the positive things that come in life, not just the negative things. And as we talked, all of a sudden this light came on for her. And she said, you know, there's a person in our church that's miscarried five times. And she said, when I look at her, I can just see the hurt and the pain that's in her eyes. And she said, I just want to reach out to her and tell her that I understand. 
And I said, well, why don't you? That in a very unusual and unique way, God has qualified you as no other person. She said, there's nobody else in our church. I don't think it really understands what she's going through. I said, God has uniquely equipped you to do that. Don't give pat answers till you've been there. Second, our groaning crushes us into the glory of a submissive spirit. Our groaning crushes us into the glory of a submissive spirit. I think A.W. Tozer might be right when he said, God cannot use anyone greatly until he breaks him deeply. God cannot use anyone greatly until he breaks him deeply. Don't forget the little children's sermon this morning. Because you you know, don't you're not you can't you should not come to God until you come like that. The symbol of your submission. And I don't know if we'll ever, you know, be submissive to God until we've been through the uh, crucible. You go through, you go into the furnace of suffering and you come out a submissive man. Number three, and this is it. little hope there. Somebody said to me one time, I think you have the gift of continuance. You just keep on. Little hope, this is the last. Our groaning marks us with the glory of a Christ-like life. Our groaning marks us with the glory of a Christ-like life. Would you underline this in your mind? There is nothing more Christ-like than bearing suffering triumphantly. There is nothing any more like Jesus than to bear suffering patiently. Your pain is an essential part of your testimony. Your pain is an essential part of your testimony. And remember that the pagan king did not see Jesus until he saw him in the furnace with the Hebrew children. And your darn friend and your neighbor and your business associate may never see Christ until he sees you in the fire. And watching you in the fire, he sees the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, give us a perspective on the difficult things of life. We've grown so accustomed to believe that when you love us, the way you love us is to keep us from hardship. And that when we're living right, we never have any pain or problems. God, give us a vision tonight of the goal of glory to which you would lead us. Help us to so see the goal, the end, the glory 
that we be willing to say, Lord, send whatever you desire that will make me like that. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations tonight I'd like to give you the privilege of considering. One is the privilege of coming to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that is the great, greatest thing that ever happens in life. Would you be willing tonight to confess your sin and repent of it and come claiming Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord? The invitation to come and place your life in the church, the invitation to say to God in your deepest heart, I want to leave behind what should be left behind I want to give my life totally and fully and completely to you. I want to march out there when everybody else goes to the house. I want to be there for you, whatever it takes. Anyone willing to say that in the rededication of life? Would you be glad to do it while we stand to sing?